The main thing to understand why I became a musician is I was unqualified for anything else. I was very unworldly, and and I didn't, you know, I had I had odd jobs as as a teenager sometimes, or, or younger than that, really, like delivering laundry and stuff like that. But this was the neighborhood. How to get work in the greater world is a complete mystery. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and I first met Jody Stecker some years ago when my wife and I performed at the Minnesota Bluegrass and Old Time Music Festival. Jody is a multi-instrumentalist and gifted singer of the old songs. His wife and musical partner is Kate Brislin, a talented musician in her own right. So when I realized that I would be traveling to the San Francisco Bay Area to record interviews for the Rosin the Bow Project, I made a point of getting in touch with Jody. For one thing, I'm fascinated with the folklore of the violin and the origin of the old fiddle tunes. And Jody is a treasure trove when it comes to such lore. Here then is part one of my interview with Jody Stecker. In part two, we delve even deeper into the folklore of the violin. I trust you will enjoy our conversation. I know I sure did. So we're here in the home of Jody Stecker in San Francisco, and uh, it's April 28, 2017. I'm here too. I'm so glad. And we've been around here for a long time in the world, right? And you've been in this uh, home, you said, how long? I've been here since 1985, and Kate's been here since, I think, 76 Something like that. Yeah. Long, a long, long time. And our and our landlord died two days, two mornings ago. We got woken up just before dawn by screaming and wailing. His caretaker was uh, discovered he didn't wake up, and there was a um, cop cars and then an ambulance and then a fire engine and finally the uh, medical examiner all came we knew what had happened you know when 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 that happened so we're still uh, still reeling from that yeah yeah we had a good relationship with him he lived right right below us so we don't know what's next well let's go back to the beginning of the story which for me when i talk to people i love to get the family lore Go back on, let's say, your father's side of the family. How far back is the, do the stories go as to where they came from and who they were? Stories, there aren't many on my father's side. Um, my father's father came with his mother as a small boy with his half-siblings because she had had outlived five husbands, and they all had different last names. And so when they arrived where? at Ellis Island... From where? They had arrived from Austria. Austria. And they all had different last names, and they could not deal with this at all in immigration. They said, what's your name now? You know, it's Stecher. What? You know, it's, okay, Stecher, you know. So there it was. But actually, my grandfather's name would have been Teller, because that was his father. But... That's, that's how it was, so he came as a boy. I did not know him. 
He, he died before I was born. I knew my paternal grandmother, though, very well. Um, my mother's family, it's another story. They were, I was really, you know, in that family with my grandparents were almost like parents. I mean, I was so close to them and we lived nearby and I spent a lot of time with them. And the, when I was just before I turned eight years old, we moved um, from one part of Brooklyn, New York to another, which was near my maternal grandparents. And on their street, I was related to, oh, six or seven different families. So there's all these, I could get lunch in a lot of, a lot of different houses, a lot of different places. Uh, so yeah, there's a, a big family on my mother's side. So you were born what year? 1946. 46? Yeah, in Brooklyn. Yeah. And so what was the uh, what was the musical traditions in the family, either mother or father's side? Yeah. My grandfather played the violin, and I learned to play on his. Um, and I don't know what he... This my is, dad's I'm sorry, maternal or paternal grandfather? Paternal. My dad's, my dad's father played violin, according to my dad, not very well. I said, well, what did he play? He said, you know, he played humoresque, and he played... Um, Played from sheet music, and he, I don't really know a whole lot about him. He was a factory worker. My dad was forced to take violin lessons and did not like it, and he was found one day playing the violin while leaning one elbow on a table, <laughs> trying to get through this. I said, okay, no more lessons for you. Just as well, I had no money at all, you know, so it's just depression time, you know, and... Uh, his toy was, he had the one toy he had was uh, six oranges. Uh, must have been too old to eat. But uh, my, on my mother's side, there was lots of musicians. There, um, I had one cousin who played mandolin apparently quite well. I didn't know him, but when he died, my cousin, second cousin, Eric J. Feldman, inherited that mandolin and he let me play it sometimes a gibson a2 yeah. um my aunt gussie who was married to one of my mother's father's brothers had a beautiful Raphael chiani roundback mandolin that's the uh, maternal uncle of D johnny d'angelico the famous jazz guitar maker my mother had a, a Raphael chiani guitar and so I had a Chiani mandolin and a Chiani guitar to, to, to learn on. Gussie gave me the mandolin when I was 12. I remember going to Johnny D'Angelico's shop on Kenmare Street to buy a string. And he said, what you got in there? You know, I said, well, it's my mom's guitar. Let's take a look. And he said, oh. He said, my uncle made this guitar, and I stuck in the label when I was five years old. He says, I remember. This is like a one-off guitar, you know. Um, round hole guitar, and I still have that guitar. It's a guitar I learned on. And the mandolin I learned on got destroyed in the 1989 earthquake. Oh. While I was in touring Scotland with Alistair Fraser, we were in Inverness, and I was having my breakfast at a B&B. &B. Our car had broken down. We had to get hauled in, <laughs> into Inverness. And with Alistair, it's just no problem at all, because he just knew every road in Scotland. He knew everything, where it was and where we were. And 
So I'm there, and I'm, I can hear the radio having a cup of coffee and some toast or whatever. And today the entire city of San Francisco was decimated. No buildings are left standing. And what? What was that? You know, so I had to make some phone calls. It was great exaggeration, of course. Nothing, nothing like that happened at all. No buildings fell down here. A little further south, a lot of people lost their chimneys, but uh, not their houses. Um, that mandolin was destroyed in the, in that earthquake. The, oh, um, what happened? Well, the, the, we didn't have our bookcases um, fastened to the wall like we do now, because we'd never been in a major earthquake. And so the mandolin, it's a round-back mandolin, was on its side in front of a row of books. And when it went down, I don't know how many hundreds of pounds of books landed on it and broke it in pieces. I still have the pieces in a cardboard box. Oh, that's the story. Yeah, so that, that's uh, so there was that, and cousin Jay, Eric, he was known as Eric then. Jay's his middle name. He played mandolin. He was in Brooklyn's first bluegrass band. It was the Kings County Outpatients. Kings County is is Brooklyn, and Kings County Hospital is a famous mental hospital. And they were all about four years older than me. And they when when my cousin. Uh, couldn't make the gigs, they'd call on me. So that was really fun at 14 to play with guys who were in college, you know, yeah. um, and play mandolin with people who were a lot taller than me. Well, of course, the mandolin is, um, is sort of related to the fiddle. It's yeah, sure. tuned in fifths. Of course. Uh, very different kind of instrument to play. So... Uh, Tell me about the migration to the violin. What happened? How did well, that my, come I had my grandfather's fiddle. Okay. And it was, I wasn't supposed to touch it. And this is when I was a very small boy. And so I would, when I had the chance, touch it. I would get up, um, I have to put one chair on top of another to get up to the high closet where the thing was stored. And it was in one of these weird-shaped cases, you know, the, um, kind of a bump, bumpy cardboard case with blue felt inside. Do you know the kind I mean? I think They're I They're always black cases. They have a very bizarre shape. It's the kind that, um, you know, gangsters are peer-carrying, peer which really have machine guns in them. And the thing was, it was a Magini copy, and it was... Um, I couldn't even tell you what color the thing was because it was so mottled. You know, I mean, some type of brown, but um, it was many, many hues. And and um, I just look at the thing, and um, I started trying to play it um, when I was about 14. And I got nowhere because I didn't know about rosin. You know, there's hairs on the bow, but the hairs won't grab. They, they won't... Uh, they won't grab a string without rosin. So I, I didn't really get very far till maybe I was 15. I tried again. Um, and what I was interested in was was the plucked instruments had a relatively short sustain. But you could, if you once you got bow control, you could make the violin sing as long as you wanted it to. You could actually. I'd watch good players, they could change bow direction without you hearing it happen. I remember seeing Kenny Baker when I was about 16, yeah. something like that. 
he was playing with Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys with a very, very good band, and I was just hypnotized by his right arm, by his bow. Yeah, and he does a lot of just back-and-forth bowing. Yeah, but he'd do very, very long strokes, and especially pushing was one thing. The way he pulled it, this down one, it would go so slowly, um, you know, on some slow songs, and I was just fascinated by it. So I was interested in playing slow stuff um, more than than uh, dance tunes or or rhythms. At the at, this is you know a young teenager. This is to get those long notes. Um, and it wasn't a very good fiddle, and I didn't have anybody show me how to use the bow. So it wasn't really until I started playing guitar with good fiddle players that I got any technique at all. Um, so you're in New York, and this folk music revival is beginning to start up, which is, for most people, becomes Peter, Paul, and Mary, the Chad Mitchell Trio. For people going a little deeper into it, you know, they're listening to the Weavers, they're Cisco Houston, people like that. And then there's this older kind of music in places like West Virginia and Galax or down in the Delta for blues. So how are you getting a sense of where this tradition's coming from at that time in New York? Well, first of all, there was the radio. Where I was, I could get broadcasts from Wheeling, West Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio. And bluegrass at that time was a young man's music. There weren't very many women playing at, you know, at that time. But the players, they weren't a whole lot older than me. You know, they, and they play live on the radio. So, you know, like Sonny Osborne started playing banjo with Bill Monroe when he was 13, right? 12, 13, something like that. So by the time, you know, he was a professional with his own band, I mean, he wasn't much more than 20. I don't think J.D. Crow was more than five years older than me. So that's just like my cousins in the end, you know, the Kings County outpatients. So, and they, would, they took great risks. They took great chances. Um, they weren't making a record. They were just playing live on the radio. And so this music would just, it sounded like they were trying to kick the speakers out from inside you know, of the radio. I, I was just fascinated by this. This is after midnight when I'm supposed to be asleep. And then there was Washington Square Park on Sundays. I'd be gathering um, there. Um, my mother's sister, Greta Brody, used to sing with the Weavers before they were a performing band, just with those that group of friends. She was very close to Ronnie Gilbert, and um, that was so. So there was there was that singing was a natural thing in our family, especially in family get-togethers. They just sing, and. For me, everything came from the radio. On the radio, if I just turned the dial, I could hear hillbilly music. I could hear rock and roll. I could hear jazz. I could hear um, this um, cuatro music from Puerto Rico, you know, that that was all sometimes record, sometimes live, right there in, in New York. I could hear everything. Classical music was there. I just turned the dial. So I didn't have this idea, well, this this is one kind of music and this is another kind of music. I like this and I don't like that. Although, 
I was more attracted to acoustic music than electric music, particularly because electric music, when it isn't on a record or on the radio, was very loud. And the, 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 um, the hiss from the amplifiers, I didn't like any of that, and, and I didn't like being on stage with all that noise. Um, I preferred the sound, in general, of acoustic instruments, so that led me to traditional music, because that was more... Sort of the gift but, of electricity, though, uh, th- and we're talking about AM radio. We're talking about AM radio. And what do they call it, the skip, this thing it would do where it bounce off the ionosphere or something, the signal would go up and hit that and then bounce back down, so you could pick up these stations where Yeah, late, late at night, you could really away, could, yeah. yeah. At night. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of a magical way for the enchantment to come to someone. I mean, it's almost mythological. I like, I like that. I'll tell you something, though. I did hear fiddle music... Fiddle specifically in the air without a radio when I was on a camping trip in 1960, I want to say two. It was an organized trip, you know, um, for older kids. You know, there was a bus and and everything, and and it was kind of like a moving camp, summer camp. We did it for a few weeks, and we were camped in West Virginia, and I don't know where we were, but I heard cross-tune fiddle, and there was nobody there. I mean, it was coming out of the earth. And I'm, you could say I'm making this up, but, you know, the, I was 15, 16, something like, maybe just turned 16. And, what is this? Uh, it was that, you know, GD, GD tuning, that sound, which I didn't know that's what it was then, but uh, I soon did. And it made an impression. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's that's cool. That's uh, really cool. I, we uh, interviewed Stuart Kanan yesterday, and he was 18 years old, and this is different than what you just said, but he, he got on a troop ship, and as he was walking up the Planko to get on, this is 1944, and uh, they had shortened the basic training uh, quite a bit because the Battle of the Bulge had happened, and they needed warm bodies. Yeah, get them over there. Yeah. Get them over there. So he had a, he had decided he played fiddle well or violin, and but he, he grabbed a kind of a cheap fiddle and mm-hmm. he wanted to keep his fingers active. So on one hand he's got the fiddle, the other hand he's got an M1 rifle, and he's got his backpack and he's going up the gangplank and the sergeant stops and says, "What's in that case?" And he says, "Violin." He said, "What are you what are you going to do with that?" And I think Stewart says something to the effect of, uh, "You never know." Well, later he gets to play for Truman, and he gets to play for Churchill and Stalin with his violin. But on the way over, he played on the troop ship. Years and decades later, he somehow, someone contacts him, and, or he met him someplace. And then he said, uh, did you, you mentioned you'd played on a troop ship. Was the name of the ship? And he said the name of the ship, and uh-huh. it was the same ship. He said, I remember that. Yeah. I was down in the hold, and I heard that, and... You know, I thought of young men going to war and away from home and that that kind of enchantment that, that music can, the, the impression it can leave, the memory. Well, you know, I, I learned pretty a long time ago that I learned that you never know. You never know, like like he said when he got up there, well, you, you never know. Um Sometimes I've been on stage, like especially with Kate 
And it might be a rowdy atmosphere, like we're at a festival in the daytime, and people are throwing frisbees. And like, we go, no one's, why are we here? Why are we wasting our time? Nobody's paying any attention. And then we find out people who were half a mile away heard it. They were way up on the hill over here, They and they, they, they came down to see who it was. They said, oh, that made such an impression. And then, you know, actually, when I heard that one song, I had to find out what the words were because I was too far away. And that led to this and that led to that. Thanks for changing my life for the better. <laughs> this has happened more times than I can count now. We played at the Hong Kong Folk Festival where the basic audience was British expat bankers. And really what they wanted was British comedy. They didn't want us. We got there because we knew somebody. Um, you know, we knew bandmate of Kate's, Val Mandel, was, was uh, her husband worked for Reuters News Service. And he was stationed there, so they, they got us the gig. By then, he was transferred to another country. He wasn't there at all, but so that's how we got there. And we're thinking, why are we here? I mean, what... I mean, we enjoy being in a foreign country, but they don't care about our music. We ended up playing fiddle and banjo unscheduled outdoors for a bunch of teenage girls that were, you know, pre-teenage girls, really, who were the daughters of the bankers, and they liked it. They spontaneously danced, and that made it worthwhile. But when we got back home, we got a phone call from a woman who ran a festival in Delaware at a museum connected with the park. And it, and her, she and her husband and another couple travel the world, and whenever they hear good music, they send a postcard to the other one saying what it was. She got a postcard from Hong Kong, and this was the linchpin gig of an East Coast tour. It paid enough that we could do the whole tour. So you just never know. And so that's why I just, if I'm on stage, I just make the best music I can, and I try to reach people. And if I think I'm not, I don't worry about that because I just sink into the song or the tune and, and relate to that if they don't want to relate to me because I'm wrong. I can't. You, it, I was telling you about about a, a gig with Jenny Hawker in Marlington, West Virginia. Yeah, it was on where... the steps of the bank. My, Kate's memory and my memory of it was... You know Jenny, so yeah, and I know Marlon. She, so she's got a lot of energy, you know. And our, these are stone steps. We had this memory of the steps pulsating. <laughs> that could not be, but you know, we played instruments. She didn't play anything, and and we also harmonized with her. And she said, "Now you watch these people out there. They'll seem to not be reacting. They're very stoic people, but if you can get when I sing the hymns, go take a good look at their eyes." And you'll see tears, and that won't wipe them away. They won't show anything with their bodies. Um, this is all a very long time ago, you know, that, that, that all this happened. This is like 1990 or something like that. Um, another time we played, this is Kate and I again, early 90s. Um, this is in Charlotte, North Carolina. Do you know Charlotte? No, no, Charlotte. Well, Charlotte, Charlotte is like the financial capital of the right. South. Bank of Americas. And and so, 
and it's right up on the edge of the mountains. You know, it's it's not a not real high elevation. And so everyone who's in service industries came from a higher elevation. And that's who we had in the audience, even though... Um, and again, we thought, they're not liking our music. You know, we're getting very tepid applause. But then in the, in the interval, when we were trying to sell some cassettes or CDs or what have you, every audience member came up and talked to us. And they said, oh, this music means so much to me. I haven't heard this since I was a child. One woman said, you've played tunes on the fiddle tonight that I haven't heard since I used to. I used to sit up and um, drive the horse. On a, my father was a peddler in the mountains, and he would sell things, and I would you know, drive the horse and he would stand and play the fiddle to attract people and then he'd sell buttons and ribbons and, and, and small things. You're playing his tunes. I haven't heard them since. So all this is about you never know. We played one time uh, at Clifftop. They have a competition there. Yeah. I'm really, I'm just one of these people who have never been interested in competing. Yeah. And so I don't normally do it. Uh, but that's the kind of thing where finally I, I talked to Paul and I said, well, let's get up and play a very simple tune. It's a tune I am very fond of, very straightforward old tune called Little Rose. And it's that's a, a hard tune to play. Well, Ooh. It, well, the soul in it is, yeah. Yeah, the notes, you got the timing on that? Yeah, I think so. But it, it's uh, I love the tune. And oh, it, yeah. And it's got a story, of course, and it's a storyteller. And the story is this man who's on the frontier um, and it's Wilson Douglas is where I picked up the tune from okay. in, in Glenville, in Gilmer County, where I lived. And uh, this man one day just goes out, and his wife's gone. Doesn't know if it's a bear, if it was Indians. Or she just never comes back, and he composes this tune, Little Rose. So it has that yeah, the, well, the I'm, I'm just getting goosebumps on my body thinking about the way Wilson Douglas played it. Was oh. When he laid into that A note at the end, it <laughs> It make my hair stand up in the back of my neck. I'm, it's happening now as I'm remembering <laughs> it. And I don't know how he does it. It's just an A. You know, well, we, it's, it's we, what you feel. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we were the last contestants. It's just how yeah. it worked out. I think we signed up late because we weren't even sure we'd do it. So we get up there and we play Little Rose and... And they had some hot players, and it's a competition. There were people who want to win that. You know, yeah. if you win a Clifftop's a big deal. We had no even a vaguest sense we'd ever place or anything, and that wasn't it. We finished the tune, we got off the stage, and we start walking back, this woman comes up. And I, I had said Wilson Douglas's name, and she came up and she said, I, I knew Wilson. I can't tell you how much it meant to me that mm. you honored him by playing that mm -hmm, tune. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's a memory you will not forget. It'll stay there, you know? It's, you never know. There we're back to that, you never know. Mm. And you, you just do it, what's in your mind at the time. Mm. Well, that's probably my favorite tune that he plays. It was just so beautiful, yeah. Let's listen to Jody play an old hymn on the violin titled Queen of the Earth, Child of the Stars. He's then joined by his wife, Kate Brislin, in the duet Roving on Last Winter's Night from their music CD, Our Town.
It burns in the month of June She's like some music instrument That's just been lately So we'll go back now to your story. We've been talking a little bit about Wilson Douglas and some of these uh, early influences, people we, you met along the way. Did you have that journey part of your life then uh, when you were getting aware of the music through the radio and the people playing uh, the King County outpatients? And then when did you say, I, I'm going to start going to the places where this music comes from, meeting some of those people and, and putting my life in this way? Well, it didn't quite happen like that. I just got invited. I mean, I used to, to go uh, with friends down to Union Grove, North Carolina, to the uh, convention there. And we're talking about, I first went in 64, 1964. So that means that there was a lot of musicians there who were born in the 19th century. You know, if you were born in 1899, you were only 65 years old. So I heard a lot of old music there. I'd go every year. Um, but, I mean, the main thing to understand why I became a musician is I was unqualified for anything else. I was very unworldly, and, and I didn't, you know, I had I had odd jobs as as a teenager sometimes, or, or younger than that, really, like delivering laundry and stuff like that. But this was the neighborhood, 
how to get work in the greater world was a complete mystery. Um, and I didn't really, you know, I was intelligent. I, I did, did okay in school, but, you know, I didn't want to go into academia. I didn't, um, you know, my, I was a square peg in their round hole. I didn't fit that at all. But music, gosh, you know, that's all I was into. I just, you know, was living and breathing music and, and thinking about it all the time. And when I'd get home from school, I would p play and, and sing. And I liked playing with, with, in bands and, and as a solo and as well. So what else would I do? So it wasn't a, it wasn't a decision. I was already doing it. I was in bands at the time I was 14. You know, and, and at least, you know, I needed money to eat. So, I mean, once I left my, my parents' house, once I got out of school and, and all of that, so th this was a way to get it as well. Not a lot, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't need a whole lot to keep body and soul together. I, I didn't require things at all. I had a mandolin. I had a guitar. You know, I had a fiddle, banjo. There's a mythologist and psychologist that I like a great deal, wrote a number of books, James Hillman, uh, who's sort of a contemporary of Joseph Campbell and okay. taught at Yale. And he wrote a book called The Soul's Code. And he put forward an idea that um, there are kind of three factors that shape who we are. And normally we tend to think there's two and we argue which is the real one, right? So there's genetics and there's environment, nature and nurture seems to be what the argument goes around and around as to what really determines the kind of people we become. And he says, I think there's a third, and it's drawn from mythology, this idea that you're uh, born with a destiny. You come in not as a white piece of paper. And, uh, and who knows if you've you know, paid dues earlier. <laughs> yeah, in so in lives. India they call this swadharma, which means personal duty. But duty isn't, it's not... It doesn't translate right because it, it means what you're here for. It doesn't mean, you know, um, something unpleasant and you have to wear a uniform. It doesn't mean a military kind of duty in, in, in that way. And it makes me think of, of um, the greatest mentor I ever had, who was Zia Muyudin Dagar. He was a Veena player from North India. He was the 18th generation of music teachers in his family. And they were court musicians. Do you remember the James Bond film Octopussy? Did you ever see that? It takes place <laughs> in India, right. and it's on an island. There's a palace on an island. Mm. His father and grandfather were court musicians there. It's a real place. And so he taught me Drupad music. I was his student for any number of years. And... You know, he, he used to emphasize this this Indian idea. Sometimes they call it swadharma. Um, it means your, your, your personal duty, why you're here. A duty doesn't translate well. Um, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's, um, it's duty in the sense that if you do that, things will align for you. Um, the doors will open, and things won't necessarily go so smoothly if you don't. And he used to emphasize with me all the time. He said, you are a musician. Don't worry about other things. Um, 
coming from a different culture, I sometimes had to worry about other things. But it was very affirming. You know, you're, you're a musician. Attend to your music, do your practice, perfect your art, and, and, and doors will open. Don't, don't worry about where the money will come from. But, you know, there other members of his family were fanatic about this, and, and um, he was not, not fanatic at all, but it was, your son is really, really sick and needs to see a doctor. I'm too busy practicing. He wasn't like that at all. His uncles were. Um, so, yeah, but it was reinforced, you know, all along. Um, everyone assumed I'd be a musician, and I didn't feel like it was being imposed on me at all. I went, well, yeah, I'm, I already am. So what, what, of course, I mean, you know, it's like saying, um, uh, you're seven now, and when you're 18, you'll be taller. Well, yeah. So 1970, I, I moved to uh, West Virginia, and I... Um, That's, wow, you were young, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was 20, just to turn 20, and I bought a farm, 80-acre farm, and had the power turned off because I got in a fight with the power company, and so um, it was a great experience in many ways, and, and trying in many ways. But one of the things I observed later on in life was, it was just amazing to me that it seemed like every important job that had to be taken care of in that uh, society, there was somebody to do it. Now, you could say economics determine that. People simply need to make a living so they'll, they'll get the job that nobody else is doing. But it was remarkable. You'd look at the doctor, and he really was supposed to be the doctor, and the banker really was a banker, as if this idea yeah, yeah, of destiny. Yeah, that's what they were like. Yeah, it was yeah. like, you know, they'd been cast. Yeah. And, and that really was their job. Even the guy who swept out the uh, hardware store, he was... And it's you know it's like when you watch uh, Andy Griffith. I think that's almost the charm of that. It's like, yeah, there's the barber. Everybody you know is the character. And so I thought later about that. There were musicians and storytellers in those societies, as if genetically we produce a certain number of people to fill that position. But now you have people who genetically are meant to be musicians or storytellers or enchanters of of the imagination in some way, but because of technology, they're now on the shelf because, well, I've got a CD, I've got a, a smart you know, device that plays all the music I want to hear. I can hear anybody I want to hear. I don't really need to hear this local guy or woman sing or perform or tell a story. And uh, I think this has been a real conflict and burden for people who are just naturally like that because suddenly they're sort of, you know, they have to do other things to live and they find another place in life to survive, but they're not really uh, living the destiny maybe that they were born to do. I don't know what you would think of that. but I... I'm not qualified to have an opinion. <laughs> this is such a big thing. Yeah, I'd have to think it over for a week or a year or so before I had anything to say. I, I'll tell you what it reminds me of, though. I was telling you about um, my Indian music teacher, Betsy M. Dogger. He was telling me about the life after he left Udaipur and um, was living in Bombay. He used to have weekend 48 hours of music at his house. People would come, they would bring food, they would bring blankets. 
and he would play, his brother would sing, and there was, um, I know people now who were in their 60s who went there as a child. I remember going to sleep hearing, hearing the music, and he said, of course, that couldn't happen now. I said, what do you mean? And this is in the seven, 1970s, he's saying this to me. He said, well, we have television now. He said, when television came to Bombay, that was the end. Um, I said, well, what do you mean? You turn off the television and go hear the music. Because, you know, in the 70s, he said, well, that's when you were going, that's when you got your farm, you know, and, and you, you were back there. And you said, I'm, you made a decision to turn your back on what was happening then and, and to go to something simpler that you thought might be better. As you now know, it isn't simple. Simplicity isn't simple. Um, but <laughs> you know, been but he, on my gravestone. <laughs> but he was saying, you know, this is this. It's a different time now. I said, I don't understand. Why couldn't it happen? He said, Well, the people wouldn't come. Well, why are there different? Are, people are people. And he said, No, you don't understand. It's it's another time. And he himself really would understand that because he was born in the 18th century, although it happened to have been the 1920s. You know, his father was a hereditary musician. He was a court musician. He was a musician to um, the Maharana. It's like a raja, a, a, a prince, the prince of Udaipur. That was his father's job and his grandfather's job. And there was patronage, and the family got paid a monthly salary to keep in practice. They had. I said, how did you... And by the way, he had some violin students, by the way. They do play violin in, in North India as well as the South. Um, it's not um, as codified. There, there's more differences between the players. But anyway, I said, how did you survive court intrigue? I mean, I've heard all about that. You know, you're a court musician and there's somebody else. And I heard about singers getting poisoned so they'd lose their voices and jealousy. He said, oh, we couldn't. We couldn't survive that. We had a contract. We had we had a house outside in town, not on the island. And I mean, this was like a union contract. You know, we had, you know, for them to for my great my grandfather to go there, you know, and, and to settle down there from wherever they had been before Jaipur, I think, somewhere another part of Rajasthan. Um, We had to be worthwhile, so they gave us a house. The house was ours. We got paid to practice. We practiced singing in the day and instrumental music at night because we had our evening meal. We couldn't sing so well. And when they wanted, when the king wanted us, a prince wanted us to play at the palace, we had three days' notice. It was written notice. They'd come send somebody, you know, and separate pay for that. And you have to understand this is a joint family. This is three or four generations and uncles and aunts and nephews. I mean, there's a lot of people there. Um, and that was an eye-opener. I, I just imagined they'd have to live at the court. And he, and he said, oh, if we lived in the palace, he could call on us, you know, wake us up at three in the morning. Oh, I want to hear your music now. We'd have no life at all. We couldn't have that. <laughs> so then he inherited, his dad died when he was, a teenager, I can't tell you the exact age, and, and he was himself court musician for a very short time. But then independence came. And when independence, you know, from the British came in the late forties, 
that was the end of princely patronage. I mean, everything changed. Now there was a democracy and Republican government. It was a whole a whole other thing. And the, the, the princes had no power. And he was basically, he was dismissed. He and his brother were, were dismissed. And uh, as teenagers, they had to make their way in the world. And what they had to do is go from the 18th to the 20th century overnight. Mm. Um, they had to, you know, sleep where they could find it. And they sold bananas for a while. And, but eventually, you know, eventually, you know, they... they the older brother started a school in, in outside of Bombay, and, and uh, I mean it's a long, long story. It's we're getting away from the violin, but but mm -hmm. gosh, I mean they made, they they made a life, and they've trained some wonderful singers and instrumentalists, and I'm so lucky to be their student. Well, I spent a year in uh, in Inverness, Scotland, okay. uh, studying Scottish fiddle uh, with Ooh. Donald Riddle. Oh, and was in the Strathspey Real Society for a while. And uh, with Donald Riddle, no kidding. Yeah, who made violins too? Yeah, yeah, and he, made, uh, he also made tunes. He made very good tunes. Very good tunes. Yeah, I play a couple of his slow airs. Mm -hmm. I'm right. very fond of those. And uh, I had the sense when I went to Scotland. I was 25 at the time that I was there. Wow. And I was, um, I I had a sense that there was still this patronage system. Because you would you would have these laments written for people like doctors and people of consequence in the yeah. society, and the fiddlers were, um, you know, given a house to live in often or given some small job to do. But it was really so they'd be available and be these great musicians. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that was I think the tail end of almost a, you know, that system at that time. I don't know at all. I can't imagine it exists anymore, even in Scotland. Right. So it's, a, it's interesting, you know, how do musicians make it in the world. Let us use for our ending theme music for this episode a set of tunes written and performed by Jody Stecker, The Showerhead Reel and The Twisted Arm. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, for links for additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. <laughs>